You may be seated. And let's go to God in prayer. So here we are, God, uh, your daughters and your sons, gathered, scattered from all over the United States, some in and around the world, assembled here on this morning. Some will join us later on in the week, God, uh, to worship you. And right now we say, come, Jesus. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. Make yourself known to us. Reveal yourself. Visit us in the midst of our worship, in the midst of the opening of your word, in the midst of the teaching of your word. Show up in our families. Show up in our minds. Show up in our hearts. Help us to get ready for the new thing that you want to do in each of us, in each of our homes, in each of our families. We pray all this and more in the name of Jesus, the Christ child. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Well, I want to welcome everybody. My name is Rick. I'm a sinner saved by grace. And uh, if you are new, uh, we want to show you're welcome here. Uh, warts and all, whatever you got going on, dysfunction, uh, this is a place for you. Ordinary people just trying to figure out how to do this thing called life, and we think following Jesus is the best way to do it. Now, we are in a season we're calling Advent, and I'll give you just a few seconds to get used to my voice. I'm okay. Uh, I'm not sick. I have allergies of some kind. It was going to make it through, I promise you, one way or another. But I'll give you a few seconds to get used to this and then just move past it, okay? Uh, we are entering the season of Advent. And Advent is the four weeks before Christmas. You just kind of heard something about that. And that word Advent literally means in Latin, arrival or appearance. So in this Advent, the four weeks, we are getting ready for the arrival for the appearance of Jesus in a new and fresh way in all of our lives, and particularly all of our families. And I imagine you have family traditions that you do at Christmas. Uh, we have the same in our own household. And for years, one of the traditions for Dallas and I, we would gather the pre-weeks before Christmas with some of our friends, and we would have a Christmas dinner. We would show at someone's house. We'd all get all dressed up, have a really nice table, and we would just sit around and visit. And so we're doing that a couple of years ago. We're all sharing, having a great time. Out of the blue, Dallas shares something of what she's going to be doing on Friday night. Now, immediately, I perked up because I thought, I didn't know that. This is the first time I'm hearing about that. Now, she probably told me, but like a typical male, it went one ear and went out the other, and I didn't remember, okay? But in my mind, I'm hearing this for the very first time, and I'm a little bummed, and I'm feeling a little rejected because I had plans for us on Friday night. And so I'm feeling like, okay, I'm being spurned here. Has anybody like me ever had these unspoken expectations in your head that you thought your spouse would be able to read your mind? And though they can't read your mind, when they did not do what you expect or set the time around like you expected, you got all been out of shape and felt a little rejected because all that, yeah, that was me. And so there was this little voice inside my head that said, you need to make her pay for this. <laughs> you need, she needs to hurt just a little bit. And so I kind of pulled away from her physically where my body's sitting next, is no longer touching her. 
Instead of looking at her, I look at everybody around the room except for her. You know, when I try to give, let her know that I'm kind of ignoring her without everybody else knowing, you know, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a, it's a skill. It's a skill. Not to make a big deal about it, but so she knows, and she knows what's going on. And so I'm doing pretty good. My lips get a little tight. I get a little bit quiet. Talk to them a little more, her a little bit less. And I'm making sure she knows there's a division, there's separation between the two of us. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And then another little voice speaks up inside of me. Rick, you're being kind of childish right now. That's a little immature. That's really not your best self. Uh, why don't you do something about it? So, okay. So I kind of leaned a little closer. I uh, got my hand under the table, put it upon her knee. Uh, she put her hand over on top of my hand. Then she very slyly slipped off her shoe and put her foot on top of my foot and started rubbing my ankle. And while she was saying that little minute, I know you're upset. I don't know why. But I know we'll talk about it after a while. I want you to know I'm aware of your feelings. I love you. We're still married. We'll figure it out. Dallas's foot is a really good communicator. I'm just trying to tell you. Yeah. Now, I'm sure we're not the only one who's experienced something like that. Where then you have this little movement, this little rift, a little repair in the relationship. All experienced it in some way or another. And that's when all of a sudden your thoughts turn from uh, hurting someone from hostility to all of a sudden you feel humility, you feel humble. Uh, your emotions go from being really angry and upset uh, to being, hey, you know what, I'm sorry, I want to connect. Uh, your intent moves from inflicting pain to affection and trying to reconnect and have resolution in the relationship. Now, in the Bible... God calls that little movement reconciliation. Say reconciliation. Reconciliation is when barriers to community get knocked down. Reconciliation is when two people who are divided become united. Reconciliation is when hostility and woundedness is replaced with healing and wanting the best for somebody else. Now, the Old Testament writers, they wrote that when the Messiah comes, when the anointed one comes, he's going to bring reconciliation. And the scriptures are full of these beautiful imagery and painting these pictures of what reconciliation looks like to give us an idea of the importance and the beauty of this thing called reconciliation. Isaiah 11, verse 6, it says, The wolf will lie that will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling all together. In other words, no conflict, no violence, no hatred, no trying to destroy the other. It goes on. And a little child who is powerless, will lead them. What would it be like if North and South Korea could finally live together on the same piece of land as one people? 
What would it look like if the Palestinians and the Jews, the Israels, could live together without destroying one another? And what would it be like here in the United States of America where for 200 years plus there has been so much hostility and abuse and bigotry between peoples of color, anger, mistrust, suspicion. What if it was healed and we truly became one, sons and daughters of one true God? Reconciliation. What if right here in the United States of America, just on the other side of an election, was still the turbulence and the division is so enormous that the people on the left side of the aisle and the people on the right side of the aisle and those people in the middle could be reconciled. Not about their power, not about their policy, not about their platform, but for the good of the people, of the citizens of the United States of America. What would it look like? Imagine reconciliation. Imagine closer to home, a family that you know, maybe in your own family tree, a couple. And let's say they're married. But their home is always so full of hostility, conflict, yelling and screaming and cussing, days of silence, not talking to the other. It's just a way of life. Where both parties, even the kids, are wounded emotionally, maybe even physically because of things said and done. Two people who are married, but yet when they get into the same bed, and one foot accidentally touches the other foot, the body recoils to get to the other side of the bed to create the distance, to remind them, we are not reconciled. There is something between us. Imagine that getting healed. Reconciled. Imagine exes who are divorced in a parted ways for the sake of their children finding common ground to be reconciled in a sense of decency toward one another. Church, there has been so much division So much hatred that's destroying families and marriages and children. The communities in which you and I live, polar, our nation, it's time for it to end. Time to stop. And unfortunately, even people who say they're followers of Jesus, 
who are in church, who watch church or engaged online, whatever, on a regular basis, get caught up in getting their little group to get against them or against them or against them. Divide and conquer. Get them. Get them. I'll show them. We'll get them. We've got to overcome them. We're no different than the world. We who are believers in Christ, we can't even agree on how we're going to endure or defeat the enemy, which is COVID, but we treat one another like the enemy. So here is my, my, my opinion. This is just my opinion. This is, not, this is my opinion. 2020 Advent, this Christmas, what the world needs more than anything else in this world we need spiritual, we need social, we need systematic, we need relational reconciliation more than anything else. Come, Lord Jesus, come, come. Do what only you can do among us. The Apostle Paul, he puts it this way over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, all of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to you and me the message of reconciliation. So here's where we're going this Advent, the thrill of hope, the hope of reconciliation. This morning, we're going to talk what it means in the scriptures about being reconciled to God. Next week, about being reconciled to one another, the people in our circle of family and friends and people we interact with. The following week, being reconciled to the world. And what does it look like for you and me, the church, to be agents of reconciliation in a world that is so messed up in 2020. That's where we're headed. Now, one of the reasons we're doing this is that Christmas is all about families. Christmas, one of the great things about Christmas is families get together. One of the most challenging things about Christmas, families get together. We're all raised in a family, and we all have family members who have issues. Some family members have more issues than others. And this year, because of COVID and the post-election stuff, these issues are going to come to the surface more and more as you move toward Christmas, gather or not together. Wear a mask, not to wear a mask, inside or outside, I promise you, the issues are going to rise to the surface. Now, I want to reassure you on the front end here that you're not alone. One of the things I love about the Bible is the Bible is full of stories about families, just like ours, and they all have issues. In the opening chapters of this Bible, we have the very first family. We have Cain, the older brother, kills the younger brother, Abel. A couple of generations passed. Later, a man born named Lamech 
Lamech is a polygamist, which means he has many wives. He is the one who introduced having many wives into the culture, according to history, biblical history. He was also a murderer. Noah was a drunk, and his family was a train wreck. Abraham got his wife's personal maid pregnant. Jacob had two wives. Each of his wives had a personal maid. He had children by all four of them. Twelve sons. He favored one of the sons over the other. That never happens in a family, does it? And everybody else knew it so much so, the other 11 brothers, they said, we got to kill Joseph. He's the favorite. We got to kill him. One of them said, no, no, no. Judas said, no, we can't kill him. Let's just sell him off into slavery. Then they took the coat that he was wearing, dipped it in goat's blood, took it to their dad and said, hey, dad, sorry, 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 but it looks like he's dead. Ah! These are the families that made it into the Bible. Hey, sit up straight. Your family's looking good. <laughs> right? Now, in the middle of all of this right here I just shared with you, there is a story I'm going to share with you this morning. It's from Genesis chapter 38. If you want to follow along in the Bible, you will notice there's no fill in the blanks this morning. I'm just going to share a lot of Bible stuff with you, and we're going to see where it goes. You take notes as you want to. But I'm going to tell you right now, this story in Genesis chapter 38, it's a Christmas story. You're not going to think it's a Christmas story. You think it's going to be a weird story. It is a weird story. It's a story about a family. Families are great, but families are weird. You're going to want to quit on me. You're going to say, what's he doing teaching? This is not a Christmas story. Stick to the end. I promise you, it is a Christmas story. Now, in Genesis chapter 38, in the very first verse, we learn about a man, and his name is Judah. Say Judah. He's the key in this story. Judah is one of the 12 brothers, uh, tw 12 brothers of the sons of Jacob, the sons of Jacob. And it says there in the very first verse, he leaves his brothers, he goes down to a place called Adullam, and he marries a Canaanite woman. Now, right off the bat, we understand this is a messed up family. Number one, he leaves his brothers. That means it's a dysfunctional family, a broken family. He's left his brothers. You don't do that then. Second of all, he marries a Canaanite woman. She's not Israelite. He is saying, I'm choosing idolatry over being faithful to God. He gets married to this Canaanite woman. We never know her name. Her name is never mentioned in the Bible. But we understand they have three sons. Those sons are laid out right there for you in three, four, and five. Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And when his firstborn got old enough, verse 6, he went and found him a wife. His, her name was Tamar. She also was a Canaanite. Now, the Bible says here that Judah's first son, Ur, was wicked, so the Lord put him to death. Now, when you read these two verses, 6 and 7, you notice something that pops out at you. I want to teach you how to read the Bible. There's a rep repetition. It says twice that Ur was the firstborn. The writer wants you and me to understand Ur is the firstborn, and here's why. Like in their culture, our culture, firstborns were considered, usually they were the overachievers. Firstborns were the ones who kind of pushed a little harder. They were the CEOs, the presidents, the prime ministers, the leaders over large groups of people. That's usually what happened with the firstborn today, and it happens back in their culture too. 
And the firstborns were the ones who got all of the good stuff. They're the ones who got the whole inheritance. They got the whole inheritance. It wasn't spread out over the family. They got it all. And they decided what to do with it. And like I said, they got all the good stuff. And so some people say, because the firstborn, his name was Ur, he was handsomer, he was stronger, uh, he was smarter. Uh, Andy Stanley puts it this way, everybody wants to live in the land of Ur. You want to be Ur, smarter, stronger. He was also wickeder. And he died. Now anybody who's reading this story understands, the ancient reader would understand that Judah's obligation when his firstborn son died was to let his firstborn daughter-in-law to marry his next oldest child. That child right there is Onan. Now Onan knows all this, and he's thinking, hold it, hold it. If I lay down with my brother's wife and she has the baby by me, even though she's the, because she's the firstborn wife, her son will be her son, and he's going to get the firstborn inheritance. My kids, my many wives, they'll get nothing. So he says, no, this can't happen. So he comes up with a plan. Look what it says. I'm going to read it from verse 8. Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife. Fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Remember, this is a Christmas story. Read it to your children if they're in their 20s. (laughs) Stick with me. It's a Christmas story, I promise you. Now, everybody here reading this story, hearing this story, they would have sympathy. They would have empathy for Tamar. They would see Tamar as the tragic victim in this Christmas story. Because in this culture, in this day and time, having children was a noble thing. It was an important thing because half the children died before they become adults. So what she was trying to do was a good thing. She wanted to have kids. Not only that, even though she was a pagan, a pagan Canaanite, she wanted to be have kids in the line of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. She was a pagan, according to their eyes, but she was trying to be devoted to God in all she was doing. So they would have empathy for her if you're reading the story. Now, everyone would know if you're reading the story what Judah's next obligation was. His moral obligation was for Tamar to marry his third son. And so he says to her right over here, here's what I want you to do, verse 11, my little boy Sheila, he's not ready to be married, he's too young. So you go home and live with your dad, I'll raise him, when he gets old enough to have kids, I'll send for you, you come, have him, and you can have your kids. But in his mind, he's going over my dead body. (laughs) Two sons I've already lost to you, I'm not going to give you a third one. So he never sends for her. He just lets her grow old, lets her womb wither. She can die shamefully, no children, a meaningless life in this culture. Now, several months later, when you read the scripture, time passes, Judah... His own wife dies. 
And he doesn't grieve very long. He grieves, the scripture says, but not very long. Total opposite of his father, Jacob. That when Jacob heard, we saw the coat of many colors, and he saw that he ought, that my son has killed. The scripture says over in verse 37, chapter 37, it says, Jacob refused to be comforted, the scripture says. Just one chapter over. But Judah here, he was happy to be comforted. So he started dating really quick after his wife died. And we don't know what dating app he used. We don't know if he used eHarmony or Bundle, uh, you know, Tinder or whatever, that sort of thing, Swipe White sort of thing. We, we don't know what he did. No. But we do know he went down to Timnah. He goes down to Timnah, and he's looking for an opportunity to date someone. Now, tomorrow, she hears what's happened. She hears her, her mother-in-law has died. She hears it. And she hears that where, where her, her father-in-law is going. So what she does, she takes off her widow's clothes, verse 14, she disguises herself to look like a prostitute, and she puts on a veil. She comes down to the side of the road, and she's waiting for her father-in-law to show up. Her father-in-law, Judah, walks. He sees this beautiful woman all dressed up, this Canaanite pagan prostitute goddess there. He goes, huh? He offers her a young goat for, him, for her to sleep with him. She negotiates the price. She says, I tell you what, in verse 18, uh, you give me your seal and your cord and your staff, we got a deal. In other words, you give me your American Express card, that's the equivalent, you give me the code to your bank account, the equivalent, and I'll do it. He agrees, the scripture says, they have sex, and she gets pregnant. Now remember, this is a Christmas story, read it to your kids if they're in their 50s. Now, let this sink in. Judah is not only going to be the father of Tamar's offspring, he's going to be her father-in-law still. Tamar is not only going to be the mother of her children, she's going to be their sister-in-law. You talk about a messed up family. And you thought your family was messed up? Your family's looking good, church. This is in the Bible. Now, Judah, she gets pregnant, he goes on, he goes back home, she says, I got to pay her, so I got to send the goat so I can get back my cord and my seal and my staff, so he sends the goat via FedEx, UPS tries to get it to her, they can't find some prostitute on the side of the road down there in Timnah, they can't find her, the goat is sent back, returned to sender, he says, don't worry about it, I tried to pay her, my conscience is clean, but I don't want anybody to know that I slept with a prostitute, so let's just let this get quiet. I'll be the laughing stock of everybody. Let this go quiet. So she continues to get pregnant, and her body begins to swell. She takes off her widow's clothes, Tamar does, and puts on maternity clothes. And the word gets back to Judah. Hey, Judah, uh, your daughter-in-law is pregnant, and we don't know who the husband is. What do you want to do? Who the dad is? What do you want to do? Because the father had responded to decide what would happen to her. And look what he says down here in, at the end of verse 24. He says, bring her out and have her burned to death. Now, church, even in this culture, that was pretty cruel. That was pretty cruel. When you read the original Hebrew text of this verse, there's only two words. Bring, burn. That's it. Bring, burn. To make the emphasis of how harsh and cruel it is. And so they bring her. 
And they're about to light the match. And right before they light the match, she sends a messenger to Judah. Look what she says, verse 25. As she's being brought out to be burned, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns thee, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Ring any bells, dad? Man, what a weird story to be in the Bible. What a crazy story. And to really understand this, you've got to understand Genesis chapter 20, chapter 37. In Genesis chapter 37, Joseph, Judah right here, this man, he's the very one who took Joseph, sold him into slavery, sold his brother into slavery, took his coat of many colors, dipped it in goat's blood, took it to his father and said, hey, dad, do you recognize this coat, dad? Do you recognize it? To make his dad believe that his son was dead. And now the very same words that he used to confront his dad are being used to confront him. Do you recognize? Two different stories. Both of them with misleading clothes, deception, and the blood of a goat to cover up what is going on. And in one single sentence... Judah is forced to recognize his sin. To recognize his brokenness. To recognize the dysfunction in his own life and his own family. And not just with Tamar, but with his brother Joseph and his dad Jacob. Judah recognized him and he said, she is more righteous than I. This little Tamar, she, 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 she's holier than I am. I, I am full of Jew. I'm full of Israelite. She's a Canaanite, but she is more like God than I am. Humility. God begins to do a work on Judah. Judah calls off the execution. Tamar lives. Oh, Tamar, she gets what she wants. She gets to be a part of the story of the family of God, of God reconciling the world to himself. And I guess you could say the moral to the story is this. If you are a woman and your first husband dies because he is wicked, you marry his brother and he refuses to impregnate you and he dies. And your father-in-law refuses to let you marry the third son. You wait around until your mother-in-law dies then you dress up like and pretend to be a prostitute and you have kids by your father-in-law and eventually it all work out. Merry Christmas, everybody. It's a Christmas story. <laughs> How did that story get in the Bible? What were they thinking? Couldn't Tamar have done something a little more wholesome to solve her problem? Couldn't she have sold Mary Kay? <laughs> Essential oils or become a personal shopper or something? I mean, my gosh. I mean, wow. Pretty cruel world. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly why. But I want you to get this, this, this scripture 
Written at a time where the world was pretty hard. Just like it is today. You have any idea what's going on with the women in the Sudan, how they're treated in the Sudan? Do you have any idea what's going on with, the, with women who are pregnant in the northern part of Ethiopia right now? Do you have any idea? Harsh and cruel. And what, by, the, by, the Bible writer wants you to know that these stories about these little families in the Bible are not these little sweet, little virtuous, little moral, little fables for you and I to go sweet kumbaya to. These are real families in a real world where there's real evil. Where families are really messed up and really confused and do stupid and harmful things to hurt each other that makes it very complicated for there to be a real, live, loving family. That's real. And when you read the Bible, you got to read the Bible with your whole mind to understand that. See, sometimes people read the Bible and they think that the Bible is about patriarchal. I want to read the Bible because it's so patriarchal. It just crushes women. But you see, when you read the Bible with your whole mind, particularly the Old Testament, you need to understand that many of these stories in the Old Testament, in these family stories, the whole point is to undermine the evil of people in power who try to crush other people with authority and control and to make them feel just like they're nothing and worthless. Think about little Tamar. She was marginalized. She was cast aside because she was just a woman. Her womb was barren. She had no kids. Twice widowed. Victim of sexual misconduct. Shameful. In that culture, you would expect a woman like that just to kind of cower and pass her surrender, and you would never, ever hear about her. She would be another casualty just put aside. But Tamar showed remarkable ingenuity and courage and determination. And creativity, though a little shady, creativity. And in the end, she overcomes against a system that was stacked against her. But she's not the main character of the story. The main character of the story is not Judah and not Tamar. The main character in the story is God. That God loved Tamar. He had concern, compassion for her. That God was reconciling the world back to himself, not counting people's sins against them. Recreating a reconciled community where the barriers are knocked down of the past. You see, God wants the family God wants everybody to be welcome into his family. And God wants to reconcile everyone to himself and everyone to each other. That's what God is doing in the story. That's what God wants. 
That's what God does. This is an amazing story. And it's a key story in the whole Bible. Because many generations later, Judah, with his brothers, stand before Joseph, the one they sold into slavery again. They don't recognize their brother. Their brother recognizes them. And Judah gets to play an integral part in the most climactic verse in the whole book of Genesis. And it's the introduction of forgiveness into the world. We're going to go there next week. Come back next week. You'll learn more about that story, that most incredible introduction to forgiveness in the whole Bible into the world. But this is tomorrow's story. That's next week. This is tomorrow. What happens to tomorrow? She has twins. What happens to the twins? What happens to tomorrow? After Genesis 38, you don't hear about tomorrow again in the book of Genesis or the rest of the Old Testament. But she does pop up about a thousand years later, give or take, in the opening words of the entire chapter of the New Testament. Listen. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. What, Matthew? You're going to include her in this story? You're going to bring up that story? That sordid story about that girl who pretended to be a, a prostitute and, and tricked her father-in-law into sleeping with her? Really? You're going to include her in this story? What are you thinking? What are you doing? In the light of Jesus? Interesting, genealogies are very important to the Hebrew people. When you and I read this genealogy, I, I, I bet you many times you've opened the book of Matthew and you've you said, I'll just skip that and you, you go beyond it because it's so boring. How do you read that? You just skip, but not to the Hebrew people. They would read every name because in this genealogy, they found their identity. They found their culture. They found the purpose, the action stories of their life. Their Genealogy was everything to them. That meant we are a people. We have a tribe. We have purpose. We're a reason for existence. But Hebrew genealogies did not have women in the genealogy. But this one does. Not just a woman, but a woman who tricked her father-in-law and is sleeping with her. Really, Matthew? What have you done here? Why did you bring this up when you're talking about the birth of Jesus? And not only her, she's not the only woman. In verse 5, you have Rahab. She was a Gentile woman. She was a prostitute. Then you have Ruth. She was a Moabite. Then in verse 6, the mother Solomon, whose mother was Uriah's wife, which was Bathsheba, the one who David couldn't, get, couldn't resist and gave in to and blew his whole deal. What are you doing, Matthew? 
It looks like you just kind of try to find the most disreputable people to put them in this story to get people ticked off. Why did you include all these disreputable people in this genealogy? Because it was time for Jesus to proclaim the gospel. Everybody's welcome. Everybody's imperfect. And everybody is a candidate for a miracle of reconciliation. Outsiders get to be brought on the inside. Saints and sinners get to sit right next to each other. And the love of God gets poured through this two people who come back together again in the end, Judah and Tamar, and their twins become the conduit. Their little twins from that crazy little relationship become the conduit through which the love of God is revealed through a person in the name of Jesus Christ. Amazing. Amazing. See, it turns out the story of Tamar is a Christmas story. People like you and me get to be part of that same story. In the lineage of the Messiah, Jesus. Now to personalize this just a little bit for you. Every Sunday night, almost every Sunday night, I go to my mom and dad's house. Some of you know this. I've been doing this uh, for many years. They're probably watching the worship right now. Mom and dad, hi, I love you both. Uh, and years ago, I started going to my mom and dad's house on Sunday night because my dad was on church staff here. I don't know if some of you knew this. My dad was on church. My dad is an ordained United Methodist minister. He retired. He came here. was a counselor. He kind of served on staff pseudo. There were a lot of people in this room and watching online that were blessed by my dad in counseling. And he served me well. He, he kind of was my mentor in many ways. And he would listen to me about what happened the week before and about the week to come, and we would just talk on Sunday nights, and my dad would just pour into me and minister to me. And he, he, he was tricking me because he would figure out stuff about that I couldn't do, and he would slide over the house. He knew my week was heavy. He'd mow my yard for me. A bunch of rolls that he would make would shine, would end up on our kitchen table. A fresh meal, he would cook it. He knew what my schedule was. It was his way of knowing what was going on in my life so he could serve me and my family. It was almost every Sunday night. My dad is 90 now. Here's a picture of my dad. My dad can no longer mow my yard. He can no longer fix roles for me and my family. My dad can no longer do counseling like he used to do and mentor me the way he used to do. Because sometimes the stories get a little confusing. My dad's been diagnosed with spinal stenosis. He has pain in his legs often. He's had surgery, but sometimes it takes him it takes him a while to get up. And when he gets up, sometimes he kind of wobbles. He's kind of unbalanced. And sometimes the stories get repeated, the same story, Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. But I keep going back every Sunday night. And sometimes people ask me, why do you keep going back? Your dad can no longer do the stuff that he used to do, and he's no longer doing those things for you, for your family. Why do you keep going back? I will tell you why I keep going back. Because when I leave my dad's house, every single time I leave my dad's house, 
regardless of how he feels or where his thinking is, he says, Rick, I love you very, very much. And my dad hugs me. My dad knows everything about me. He knows every stupid thing, every sinful, every broken, every time I failed, my dad knows it all. And he still loves me. And I need to hear that. And you need to hear this. You have a father in heaven who loves you. Your father on this earth, he may not know how to love you and love you well. But you have a father in heaven who knows everything about you. And he loves you. And he loves you so much, he sent his son to be born in a manger and to die on a cross because God was reconciling you back to himself, not counting your sins against you. Through Jesus. And if some of you are honest, you're kind of like Judah. You got some stuff in your story that stinks. It smells. It's ugly. And you've not yet reconciled it back to God. This morning, I'm going to ask you in just a moment to do that. I'm going to ask you to confess what needs to be confessed. To admit what needs to be admitted. If something needs to be fixed, make a commitment to fix it. If something's not right, you make a commitment to make it right. I ask you to do that. I'm asking you, please, this Advent, in your busy, 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 busy life, make room for the king in your family. For the one there was no room in the inn, you make room for him. Do you recognize him? Do you recognize him? That's Jesus in the manger. Do you recognize him? That's Jesus on the cross. Do you recognize him? That's Jesus hanging out with the poor. Do you recognize him? He's the one saying, I'm hungry, feed me. Do you recognize him? <laughs> Calling you to repent. And secondly, I'm asking you to become an agent of reconciliation. We live in a world that's messed up. It's really messed up. Would you agree with me? It's messed up. And instead of pointing fingers at the world, could we please be a part of the solution at the world? And so this Christmas, I'm asking you, in the midst of all the isolation and all the COVID and all the post-election stuff, I'm asking you to be an agent of reconciliation. Put this on the screen. Invite the uninvited. Welcome the unwelcomed. We have all these Christmas services at Pathway. You're seeing these online. You can invite them to join you in your home online. You can invite them to join you in the United States of America, wherever they are. You can physical distance and do this in your home. But I want you to think of people that you know that are on the outside, that feel like they're so far from God. They don't have a chance. And invite them to come be a part of what God is doing at this place on Christmas because there's need for reconciliation in the world. And I'm going to ask you to serve out here against the wall, we, need, we have places to serve. We need you to serve. On Christmas Eve, we have, we have many needs. I would just ask you to stop by the wall. 
Now here's what we're going to do. I'm going to give you a few seconds to be still. It turns out this is a Christmas story, isn't it? Because next to the manger is Tamar and Judah with the angels. You know what they're singing? Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. Merry Christmas, everybody. Merry Christmas. Just take a second before you leave here, just a few seconds, just to spend some time with God. Be reconciled to God right now. Watching online, here in the house, True Worth, Sanctuary, just be reconciled to God. What is causing the distance between you and God? Maybe it's something smelly in your past you've not yet dealt with. This morning, you begin to deal with it. Maybe it's a habit. Maybe it's a mindset. Maybe it's an attitude. Confess it. Be reconciled to God. Here's what I know. When your heart is open and you're vulnerable, and you surrender, when you surrender, it touches the heart of God. And he'll wrap his arms around you and say, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. So just a few seconds in the silence, you just, whatever business you need with God, do it right now. It's hard to believe sometimes that anybody could love us. We're so messed up. We do all this stupid stuff that hurts people and divides and creates problems in our relationships. Our mouth pops off. These attitudes. How could you love us? And yet read the Bible. And we see all these other families that are just like us. And you love them. that gives us hope be among us come Lord Jesus reconcile us back to you and use us as agents of your reconciliation in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit Amen thanks for coming